I'm in the kitchen, you in the kitchen. You ain't cooking up. We cooking up, chopping up. D King. Lay down. Trap side, rap side, Don and the King. Gonna do it. We gonna do it. Chopping up. Good evening, good evening. Peace. And welcome back to Chopping It Up, Season 3, Episode 10. And this is our season finale. Tonight's special guest is co-founder and CEO of Breakbeat Media, creator of the Source and the Source Awards, co-founder of Hip Hop Weekly, Mr. Dave Mays. Peace to everybody in the chat. Can you give me a thumbs up if you can hear me well? Thank you, thank you. First, I would like to thank my tribe for this amazing journey. My executive producer, Miko Sunga, you are the best. Graphics, promo, visuals, my brother, Mad Urgency Myron. And on video, Adam7X, a.k.a. Mecha Godzilla. Yes, thank you for the thumbs up. Good. A huge thank you to our family of sponsors, especially for season three. Uh, Grown Fresh NYC. Greatest of all time. You already see what I'm rocking with. Street Fatigues. So what's the scenario in House of Customs MD? And that's Customs with the K. You can find them on our website at choppingituppodcast.com. And we are currently waiting for our guest to enter the building, uh, the iconic Mr. Dave Mays. Of course, if y'all know your history, um, <laughs> yeah, the source, the hip hop Bible, you know, the five mic rating system, unsigned hype. Uh, um, I can go on and on, man. This this man is a, a, a media mogul, a media visionary, and um, has his hands tapped in a lot of things, you know, due to the culture. All right, let's get busy. Um, he is the founder of Hip Hop's official Bible, The Source, and co-founder of Hip Hop Weekly. He is also the co-founder of Breakbeat Media, a multimedia podcast network he launched in September of 2021, which is dedicated to serving the interests and perspectives of hip hop across the globe. Without further ado, please welcome media visionary and entrepreneur, Mr. Dave May. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, man. The last time we ran into each other, I think was uh, I think it was down in southeastern DC. We was out there with Nori. Oh, was that it? Oh, yeah, that the, the festival. Um, yeah, the festival. Out there. Yeah, long yeah. time. I think it was 2018, maybe 2019, because you've been ripping running since then. Yeah, that sounds right. I know I've seen you at the Kennedy Center also. Yeah, definitely. Which time that was. But yeah, we, we, man, man, you know, we ran each other all the time while I was in DC. And, you know, I came out to Chicago um, top of this year. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I've been staying in Chicago. I've been back and forth between DC and Chicago the last few years, but I, I've been out here all year so far. Oh, wow. So is that going to be a permanent mainstay or are you just going to still keep going back and forth? We'll see where things lead, you know, now that this new platform is up and running. Uh, Right. But I did fall in love with uh, fall in love with the city of Chicago. My girlfriend is from Chicago, born and raised, and kind of brought me out here. And I just fell in love with the city, made some good 
friends out here. I think it's a, a great city that has a lot of potential and, you know, a lot of things it needs. And hopefully I can have some, some impact in, in uh, helping things in the city as well. That's what it is, man. Well, I, I know you've always been innovating and always, you know, in the cracks and crevices of this culture, you know, putting your fingerprints on everything. So, I'm, but I want to start out on a, on a different thing, on a different note, you know, something that you and I can definitely relate to, you know. Um, you're a native Washingtonian. That's right. And you've seen and experienced, you know, the culture. You know, what were some of the influences in the go-go scene that was a part of your growth? Oh, man. Well, you know, I'm, I'm from, you know, from the 80s, you know. So when I was growing up, it was all about go-go. I mean, of course, I did hear certain rap records on the radio. You know, the radio stations would play the big songs. Yeah. But people, people didn't really take hip-hop seriously in D.C. at all. You know, we were all right. about go-go. So, you know, I mean, Trouble Funk, um, mm. you know, Chuck Brown, of course, Rare of course. Essence. Yes. <laughs> you know, those were the biggest bands. There was a lot of great bands back in those days as well, but those were probably the, the top ones and the ones I was really, you know, into. Um, but, yeah, I was, I was heavy into go-go from probably sixth grade, seventh grade, just growing up in D.C., just being exposed to the music and the culture of the city, going through yes. the public school, school system, and uh, just making a lot of friends from other parts of the city that kind of, you know, turned me on, got me tapes and, you know, different things like that. Yeah, took, me no out for, took, took me out every once in a while to the black hole. or mm. Oh, man, legendary black hole. One way in, one way out. <laughs> Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. Those Christmas were the days. Yeah. All right. So um, I want to know if, if, you know, being as though, of course, hence the name, you know, Go Go Dave came about, I assume you brought some of that culture, you know, while you were attending Harvard, correct? Yeah. In, in 1986, I left D.C. To, to attend Harvard as an undergrad. I uh, brought all my Go Go tapes up there with me. I had all the, you know, all the tapes packed up and uh i tried playing gogo for people up there but they didn't they didn't they didn't like it at all it wasn't feeling it huh <laughs> i mean for, first of all you know going to harvard was a culture shock because the people who attend harvard at least back then were just a very different type of person than the people i was used to being around in dc right so i you know i'm, I'm up there with my my fila sweatsuit you know, mm. look, trying to be fresh, and people are like, you know, who who is this guy? Is this what is guy? going with him? You know? They not him. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, but I did meet this one kid. He was from Philly, named John Schechter, and he That's was into right. rap rap music. And uh, he was getting ready to go down to the Harvard radio station to talk to them about a radio show. The station was playing almost entirely classical music, you know, all day long. But it had a big signal that reached throughout Boston. And I decided to join him. And we started a radio show our freshman year. Yeah. It started off, you know, in the middle of the night, Friday nights at like 1 a.m. Uh, but, but people tuned in because back then, you know, there was nowhere else to hear hip hop. In Boston, there was no radio station that played any rap music. 
Um, and this all. was called Street and Beat, correct? Street Beat, that was the name of the show. And right. that was where the Go-Go Go -Go Dave was my radio name. So, right. you know, I try to bring, bring that, you know, to the city. But man, it started off, I would play Go-Go and people would call in, like literally cursing me out, like, you know, turn that off, what are y'all doing, you know? And I, I couldn't really keep it going with people up there. And that's when I kind of veered, you know, much more heavily into, into hip hop you know, in that mm. era. And that was, the, that was the emergence of the golden era. So it was, it was kind of like the perfect time. You know, I, I remember Rapper's Delight and I, you know, knew all the lyrics to Rapper's Delight when I was in sixth grade or whatever, running around on the playground. And, you know, I heard the message and that really, you know, just, you know, impacted me a lot and, you know, just moved me a lot. But, you know, when you get to 86, that's when Rakim comes on the scene. Mm -hmm. That's when you know, yes. Boogie Down Productions comes on the scene. That's when, yes. you know, shortly thereafter you get Public Enemy and, you know, you get NWA and you just, hip hop be, starts going to another level from where it had been, you know, lyrically, conscious wise, you know, just culturally as a movement, it's really yes. starts, to, starts to gel and take off and become something even, you know, more special than it, than it had been. Uh, so that was really the time that I fell in love with hip hop deeply. And, you know, it's it's been my life ever since. You know, Go-Go's still in my blood. You know, if you grow up in D.C., it's always going to be in your yeah, blood. You're always going to love your blood. You're right. You know, love listening to the music. So when I come home, I try to, you know, stay up with what's going on and, you know, still listen to it every now and then. All right. So fast forward to 88. You created The Source as a single sheet newsletter. What was the initial spark that engaged you to start this newsletter, which would turn into an iconic brand? Well, it was two things. You know, growing up, I had always been like an entrepreneurial type person. I was very, you know, always trying to start businesses when I was young. I had a lawn mowing business in junior high school with 80 customers and I had business cards. And, you know, so I was always, you know, hustling, trying to make money. Um, one of the reasons I, I decided to join the radio station um, in my freshman year was I found out that you could sell sponsors of your show and you would make a commission if you sold those sponsorships. So I was like, <laughs> okay. You was, was hustling. Right. I was like, okay, yeah. this is cool. I, I might be able to make a little, a little money doing this. So I would go out as the show got established I would go out and I knew we had listeners because people would call in from all over the Boston area, you know, loyally every week, you know, calls and calls and calls. But I was getting laughed at when I would go to the local record store or the local clothing store. They were like, you know, who's listening to a rap show on Harvard Station? You know, get the hell out of here, that type of thing. Right. So that made me think about how can I show that I had this audience. So I started building a mailing list of my listeners and I would have mm. people call in join the street beat mailing list. And I would sit up all night writing down names and addresses, answering the phones and uh, typing them into a little database in one of those big early computers that, that we had back then. And so I'm building up this mailing list and I've got over a thousand names and addresses. And um, while I'm answering those phones and talking to people, they're asking me all these questions about, you know, hip hop. And there's this, you know, just, this hunger for information that everybody had. You know, when is the new Big Daddy Kane album coming out? Or who produced that, you know, single for Slick Rick? Or, you know, people have 
so many questions and there was no way to get this information. Exactly. But, yeah, I was I was becoming plugged in with the labels, you know, running the radio show and really trying to take it serious and be the number one radio show for hip hop in Boston. You know, I would call all the labels and, you know, have them, say, you know, get me the advanced copy of that new Stetsasonic before anyone else. Before and, anyone else was thinking about it. Yeah, and just try to, you know, so I would get information talking to the reps at the different labels, okay. um, you know, and um, that was where the spark, I was like, okay, I can create a newsletter. I'll sell ads on the back of the newsletter and right. I'll put the imprint the information on the front of it and I'll mail it out to all of my listeners and start it like that. So that was the initial inspiration. And I sold four ads on that first newsletter, three local record stores and one label, Jive Records, which was you know, a big label for hip hop, you know, starting in the eighties. They actually gave me $75 for an ad on the back of the first newsletter of the source. And wow. you know, after that, it was just like, it just, it, it was an outlet for me that merged my love of this music and this culture, you know, that was my life and this entrepreneurial side. And I was like, you know, I didn't look back. I was like, man, I'm just going to keep building this and making it bigger. And, you know, of course there was a lot of naysayers. I had a lot of, you know, my family and other people like, you know, we, you know, you sent yeah, you Harvard. Harvard. And, Harvard. What are you doing? what are you doing why are you trying right. to start a rap music magazine and all that kind of stuff but i was determined i had you know i had that vision very early on i mean i just i recognized that hip-hop was going to be you know huge because it was unifying people in a way like nothing else had done before mm -hmm. um you know it was crossing over uh all the traditional dividing lines of race of class of geographic area, whatever, and, and its appeal, it was you bringing young people together, um, yes. you know, no matter what your background was. So I'm, I'm looking at that and I'm like, man, you know, this is going to be huge and it's going to, you know, change the world. And I had that idea like very early on, I want to build this platform for the culture and for the community. And, you know, again, people didn't take hip hop seriously back then the media, everybody looked down on it and, you know, basically, you know, dissed it or would make it seem like, you know, oh, you know, yeah, it was no just a fan. I remember that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you know, rapping, it's just a bunch of talking. There's no skill involved in it. And, you know, they didn't think of rappers as poets and lyricists and, Oh, you guys just sample music to make beats. There's no skill involved in producing right. and, you know, so people didn't take it seriously. And, you know, those of us that were growing up with it, like it was everything to us. So, you know, I'm like, man, you know, I just want to show the world how incredible this music and this culture is and all these people that are contributing to it and create a platform that could kind of, you know, go up against these mainstream media outlets and, and, and give us our own, you know, voice. And right. So, so with that, right. So with that being said, that's like during the time period we had, you know, word up and write on and rap pages and et cetera. It sounds like to me, you know, you were making your statement, you know, for the source to be the critical voice for the hip hop culture. That's what you're explaining to me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, we had word up and write on rap pages was a magazine that came later after the source, yeah, right. more, more like the source. But when I started the source, all we had were these kind of teeny bopper magazine so mm -hmm. you know you would you would buy them if you wanted to pull out a big poster 
you know, and right. put it up on your wall. You might get a Houdini, <laughs> you might get a Run DMC, but most right. of the time they like on New Edition and so on and so forth. Right. And the information was like, you know, what's Slick Rick's favorite food? You know, it wasn't talking about anything like serious <laughs> or, you know, intellectual or anything like that. And uh, so that's really, yeah, that like to, to, to create a more, you know, just a more professional, comprehensive and, you know, really smart platform for for hip hop. And uh, yeah, that was that was the the uh, the plan. That was the idea. And there was nothing else uh, like it at the time. So, you know, I, I, I was fortunate. I just kind of hit it at the right point in time. OK, so, I mean, you literally created a blueprint for most to follow. Um, I want to know how did you come up with the legendary five mic rating system, and did you know the section unsigned hype would play a major role in the pantheon of hip hop's MCs? Sure. Well, I can't personally take credit for those. I, I did have, you know, a great team around me as the magazine grew. Uh, yes. Again, young people that have all, you know, many of whom have made names for themselves in this industry exactly. over the years. Some of them are still out here doing things at a high level. Um, so I always had great people. And I, um, you know, I, I kept my finger on the pulse and what was going on with the editorial, but I really let the editors kind of run things. So, you know, the, the five mics really started with just, you know, we're going to review albums and singles. We're going to write mm -hmm. reviews and let's do a rating system like, you know, other publications had, a, you know, one to five stars or whatever right. the case may be. Um, and, uh, but, you know, as, as with everything with the source, like we took it super serious. Like this wasn't a hobby. This was something we really were this passionate was life. about. Yeah. So we spent, yeah. you know, a lot of time, like listening to albums, debating the albums. We, the, the, the group was called the Source Mind Squad. That was, you know, the original uh, team yeah. that would you know, rate the records. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it, it was something we took serious. And same thing, Unsigned Hype, it, you know, that started with just people just started sending their demo tapes into the source once we printed an address in there. And we had, you know, boxes of tapes that, that you know, we decided, hey, you know, start listening to these and let's pick out a best one every month and feature it. And, of course, you know, we discovered some of the, the greats of the hip hop uh, before they they ever had uh, record deals from Big E to yes. Common to DMX to Bob Deep to Capone Noriega to Eminem, uh, David Banner, Jay Electronica, Joel Santana, Pitbull. Uh, I'm forgetting a few more, but the list goes on of of uh, amazing talent that that we kind of were on uh, onto before they ever got signed to a record deal. Now, were th now were there any that you might have? Uh passed over that you had to come back to <laughs> well again i wasn't doing the the unsigned hype i wasn't listening to the tapes you know maddie c was the first yeah person of course piece of maddie really, c yeah also another dc native uh yes. maddie and um you know matt was amazing and he's one of the most legendary a and r people in in the hip-hop you know music industry after he left the source um so, you know, Matt and then Riggs Morales was also very big with yes. unsigned hype for, for a number of years. And uh, of course, he's also going on to become one of the greatest A&R men. Yeah, I was I was just fortunate to uh, meet Riggs through uh, D, uh, J period a couple months back. 
Okay, that's good. Yeah, that's really good. Uh, yeah, good, great guy. And yeah. Uh, so yeah, I'm sure that there were some that we we passed over that um, you know probably were good. Uh, we didn't get everything right, you know, with any of the stuff, but we had a, a strong track record, which is oh, what yes. gave the source that reputation as the Bible of hip hop. And Indeed. we're actually we're actually in the middle of producing as for you know for this new podcast network that I, I just launched. Um, one of the things we're doing is the kind of journalistic uh, storytelling side of podcasts. Mm -hmm. And um, that's a huge area of podcasting that really, you know, uh, hasn't touched the hip hop world very much yet at all. So right. we're doing one, one, one of the series I'm working on now is the story of the unsigned hype column. It's, mm. it's an eight part uh, podcast documentary. Um, that tells the whole backstory. How do we come up with it? How do we find these? And, you know, everybody from Maddie and John Schechter and Riggs are all, you know, speaking in it as well as all the artists and people that were around them. So that's going to be an incredible podcast. Uh, for oh folks man, I can't wait for that. Yeah. 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 Definitely make sure you, uh, send me a link. I'll make sure I'll push for you too, man. That's, that's something nice right there. Absolutely. Um, let's, let's fast forward a little bit because when people think about, the Source Awards, so many iconic moments come to mind. But in 1991, you created the Source Awards. But most don't know it was started as a feature on Yo! MTV Raps. That's right. How did that first partnership come about? Well, um, so we were doing like a year-end issue, like, you know, the best in hip-hop for 91, you know, right. the best songs the best albums that type of thing and we kind of came up with the idea from that of like let's just make our own awards and give out mm -hmm. an award you know best new artist best new group whatever you know best album um and uh so at that point i was already starting to expand my vision for the source beyond it being this magazine and understanding right. it as a brand and right. you know, I was really early with that because most magazines didn't think of themselves as brands back in those days. And, and exactly. there weren't very many magazines doing things outside the pages. So I was already thinking in this multimedia way. So the Source Awards, I'm like, well, how can I actually turn this into something bigger than just printing stuff in the magazine? So we had a relationship with the producers and the host of Yom TV Raps. And I called, called them up and said, hey, you know, would you want to get, do like a day or two on you know, on TV Raps where we give out the Source Awards? And they said, yeah. So wow. that's how it started. The first couple ones were just uh, on you know, on TV Raps. And we just, you know, the, we got a few artists who, who we were giving awards to to show up. And they just came out on the set and received their, their, their little award and, and gave their speech. But, you know, I always wanted to turn it into a real award show. So that, you know, I started thinking and planning for that. And, Right, the independent um, production of it. Absolutely, you know. So that came a couple years later in 94. Did uh, MTV ever really wanted to invest or they didn't see your vision? No, I mean, MTV, you know, they had Young TV Raps and it was doing real well for them, which, you know, was a surprise because I'm sure most people at MTV because, you know, they weren't really messing with yeah, they were, rap exactly. or even, yeah. even black music. In, in the eighties at all. Exactly. Um, but the rate, the ratings were huge, but that was about as far 
as MTV was taking it, like they didn't have an interest in doing anything bigger. So there was never any conversation. There were people that were approaching me about investing, you know, including uh, Jan Winter, the founder of Rolling Stone in those years, and, and Quincy Jones, uh, you know, approached me prior to him deciding to launch Five Magazine and, you know, he wanted to invest in the source. Mm -hmm. So, you know, being hip hop's version of the Bible, uh, you really took it globally, you know, with renditions of the source, France, Japan, and Latino. What were some of the hurdles you had to, you know, fare with, with the implementation of foreign languages? Um, well, first of all, you know, the source very early on uh, in the early 90s, we finally got a major magazine distributor to pick us up. You right. know, prior to that, um, prior to that, we were sold mostly in record stores. Um, and yes. We built our own distribution in record stores, which was big. But we finally got one of the major magazine distributors to give us a deal. And not only did they put us out on newsstands in the US, but they also began to send the source overseas to a lot of countries. So whether it was Europe, you know, all the European countries, whether it was Australia, you know, even Japan and South Africa and a lot of places, you know, the source was, was going and being sold in all those countries uh, by the mid 1990s. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of people who grew up overseas and really learned about hip hop for the first time just from reading the source magazine the source magazine yes yeah so that was really that was really the first way that we brought hip-hop to the rest of the world was just distributing the magazine in country you know maybe 30 40 countries around the world right um, and then as the years went on and the market overseas grew that's when it was like well let's start you know actual foreign language editions of the mm. magazine the source france was the first one um and uh you know there was a a publishing company in france that was doing magazines and they were kind of hip and independent and they really kind of got it and we did a, a licensing deal with them so mm. you know we would translate translate uh portions of the actual source magazine you know into french french um yeah. and pub publish those articles but they also had their own staff and they would create local stuff because you know hip-hop was big in france yeah. at the time that's, that's one of the first countries that really you know adopted hip-hop in europe and you know you had some big art rap artists oh yeah become, you know from france mc solar and others you know um in those days so it went from there then a couple years later i had the opportunity to do the source japan and the source latino we created our on our own and uh so yeah it was definitely uh, had a had an international, you know, uh, uh, you know, platform and, and vision for for the source. Well, you know, um, I always wanted to ask you this because, you know, the first time you and I were actually introduced to each other was in 2017 uh, at the Fillmore when the locks were in town, and P. Stu introduced me to you, the homie P. Stu. What's up, P. So Stu? Yeah. I, yeah. So I, I, I'm. Uh, Honestly, at that time, like my head was ringing off because when he was like, yo, that's Dave Mays of the source. Now I was like, 
it had I, I had to like do a double take you know what i'm saying so uh but i i always wanted to ask this question you know i know you get this as probably a million times you know in your interviews but you know i want to talk about that infamous night of the you know 1995 source awards man like yeah. I, I know the energy in there could be uh cut with a butter knife so to speak you know what i'm saying like you know you as the creator and the owner of that like what were some of your emotions you know for that evening and and you know overall how did you think you handled it sure well um i mean there's a few things that are important to get right about that night because please do set, yeah, you set the record straight because it's been sensationalized yeah. so much absolutely so first of all you know people try to say that the source awards is really the starting point of this the drama between you know east and west and you know bad boy at death row right and what you have to understand is going into that source awards um tupac was in jail um right. tupac had been shot you know and then went to jail you know end of the prior year and he had been vocally you know vocal about his you know you know this problems thing. and issues that had yeah with bad boy and biggie and puff yeah so that was going on there was you know drama between bad boy and tupac but nobody knew going into the show in august of 95 that pac was going to get out a month or two later and join death row right so as the person organizing the show that night you know i was dealing with everybody and yeah. um you know suge knight was first of all was my my biggest supporter for that show which was really important because this was the second big source awards, but it was the first televised source awards. In 94, mm -hmm. we did a big show, but it was just, you know, you had to be in the room to see it. Um, yeah, I, I, I think Bill Bellamy uh, spoke on that a couple of weeks back. <laughs> yeah, shout out, shout out to Bill. Shout out to Onyx. He was talking about Onyx, yeah. And that yeah. Was, there's some footage you can see, like when Tupac came out on out and did out on bail and, you know, the whole thing with Tribe Called Quest, that happened in 94. But but uh, going into 95, you know, that opening set, when you see the death row performance that opens the show, yes. and they have the jail cells, and like everybody's coming out and explosions. And Suge Knight spent $100,000 plus of his own money to build mm. that set for the show. And right. when, you're, when you're making an award show for television, you know, you want to have great production value. But if you exactly. don't have the budgets to build things like that, you know, it's not going to look as good. So that really took the production value of the source and a lot of that source awards over the top. And, you know, all, all the label heads supported me. You know, I called everybody and, and got rallied them behind the source awards, you know, that this was a uh, an event that we could have our own, you know, our own yeah. award show to celebrate ourselves, our own culture, you know, not have to deal with the Grammys or whoever, you know, that would, that were, you know, dissing us and yeah, that, the AMAs. Right. So, um, you know, everybody from Puff to Suge to Jay Prince to, you know, uh, Lior Cohen and, you know, all the, you know, all the label heads moving, moving things in hip hop were, were on board and I was able to bring the whole hip hop world together into one room. Um, so, um, so yeah, so that's, one of the first things is, you know, there wasn't any tension. So when I'm putting it together, I'm not concerned about 
death row and bad boy having a problem at night you know it was, right. it was no problems you just um, want to put on a good show yeah so um now you know i think there were things that that led up to sure going on stage and saying what he said uh right. and a lot of times people don't think about that they just think he just did started it. out right did right right but um if you go back and watch the show you know there's a bad boy performance that happens um, before Shook goes on stage. And that, that was one of the most amazing performances as well. You know, if you've seen it, of course, yeah. Biggie, Biggie, Mafia, Little yeah. Kim, Total, Craig Mack, I mean, all in one whole performance that was off the chart. But at the very beginning of that, Puff is kneeling on the stage in the spotlight and he's like talking and he says something like, I live in the East and I'll die in the East. And mm. in my mind, that's something that might have, you know, sparked attention. <laughs> like, yeah, some of the West Coast people, like, you know, man, you know, we're, we're, because at the time, the West was on top. Death Row yeah. was really dominating hip hop. They had taken sure. over. Chronic came out in 92. From then on, Death Row and that West Coast sound really dominated hip hop, and, and New York was was pushed, you know, to the back a little bit. Um, so, you know, I think people from the West Coast were probably like, "Man, what's he talking about?" You know, in, in the audience a little bit, and that might have been. I've never had the chance to talk to Suge, and I, I plan to, you know, one mm. of these days have that conversation and, and ask him about that. But that's one of my thoughts about it, um, and. You know, the other thing was, I mean, you know, Shook was there, you know, because he spent all that money and brought the whole camp. I mean, I gave him like 70 tickets and he flew, you know, 60, 70 people out from Cali to the Source mm. Award. So yeah. he was the deepest, the deepest crew in there. I mean, mm. you know, Puff might have had 20 tickets or 30 tickets and, you know, different camps might have had 10, 15 tickets but nobody was deep the way Suge was so sure. I also think he felt you know even though like so the way the theater is set up is 5,000 people there but the front is maybe a thousand which is where all the industry and the artists were sitting the rest mm -hmm. of the sections were open to the public and people bought tickets so those were almost all people from New York mm. but you know when you're sitting up there in the front and, and you know I think Suge you know he wasn't worried you know uh, about anything i think he felt yeah, really not in the least good. good yes so um when it happens i'm actually in the back of the theater walking around I, you know i would always just be all over the place during the awards i would be backstage on this side or that side and going talking to this person and making sure this was happening right or making sure people had the right seats and everybody was straight and just so i was kind of taking the temperature of the audience just seeing how things were out there. And I think uh, I'm in the back of the theater and, and I hear, you know, him speaking and then there's this uproar, you know, uh, uh, a kind of booze and stuff. Um, there's a New York crowd. So, um, you know, uh, I immediately made a beeline to the backstage to try to see what was going on. And I went on one side and the way the back of the theater is in the garden, it's like, there's stairs because there's different levels in the backstage. So there's a bunch right. of stairs going up and down. And I remember walking up on that side and Suge and like, you know, again, 60 guys in, in red were like, you know, romping up and down the stairs, rah, 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 and just, you know, you know, that type of thing. And then on the other side, 
was Puff and all the people that were kind of supporting him. And I went over there and they were having, you know, deep conversation about what to do. And they, you know, everybody was offended. And, uh, but Puff, you know, to his credit, you know, took the higher yeah, role, role yeah. to speak and decided he would, you know, just try to calm things down when he, when he went out the next time. Yeah, to, to present speak. with Chris Webber, correct? And I think Faith. Yeah. yeah. So he, um, you know, kudos to Puff for, you know, taking that route because things, you know, things calmed down. There was, you know, there was different tension in the room, but uh, I think after Snoop went up and did what he did, you know, y'all don't love us, y'all don't love death row and all that, like that really kind of hit people and, and took some of the, the tension out of the room. And out of the room. So at the end of the night, there was not one punch thrown. There was nobody got shot, stabbed, you know, people make it out to be like there was, you know, this huge violence. Armageddon happened. Right, right. <laughs> and then just getting back to the, the start of the beef, you know, the real beef between Bad Boy and Death Row starts a month or so after the Source Awards in Atlanta when yeah. Chuck Knight and his friend and yeah. employee, and Big, uh, Big Jake, was uh, Shug's man that got killed, allegedly yeah. by one of Puffy's guys. Yeah. And that's when things got crazy and really serious and really, you know, moving into that violent level between those two, uh, you know, crews. So that's really the start of the drama. I don't think there was drama just based on what happened at the awards that night, um, exactly. you know. So that's an important perspective, I think, on that that, that needs to be understood better by by the you know the public and you know get the the history correct well i thank you for clearing that up you know right here on chopping it up um that's a, a very nice tidbit to hear especially for myself because like i said that's something i always wanted to ask you ever since that night <laughs> you know we for, we have first link shout out to peace too um yeah. i want to turn my attention to you know your philanthropy now uh, you created the source Youth foundation <laughs> which raised over a million to fund programs and organizations. Did you feel the need to give back in this way to show another side of hip hop's power and influence? Absolutely. I mean, um, you know, I always was attracted to the social and political conscious side of, of hip hop. You know, it, that really hit me again very early on at a young age, whether it was the message that I talked about before and the way that made me feel and the things it made me think about to, you know, hearing KRS-One talk about, you know, how Columbus didn't discover America. And, you know, back in those days, and probably even still a lot of places today, you grow up in school and they teach you, oh, you know, Columbus discovered America. Yeah. You think that's what it was. And you're not really thinking about the fact that, well, you know, there's a whole civilization of, of people that was here, you know, that, that, you know, he didn't discover anything. And um, so, you know, you start to recognize this sort of Eurocentric point of view that's imposed on us uh, when you're, you know, going through the school system at a young age. And so these are things that just, you know, hip hop sparked in my mind, and I'm, I'm mm. sure in a lot of other young folks mind at, at the time. Um, and then you know, it just hip hop began to move in a way that was to empower the communities 
from which hip hop was born, which are, you know, our inner city communities that have suffered, you know, for years and years and, you know, years in, in all kinds of ways and been oppressed in all kinds of ways and are, you know, the, the victims of racism, systemic racism and all the other disparities that exist. And hip hop comes out of the, the pain and the struggle of people that grew up in those conditions and having yeah, to deal true. with those conditions on a daily basis. Yes. So, you know, I always believe that we had, me personally as a white man in particular, had an obligation uh, to try to give back and try to make sure that hip hop, you know, was growing in a way that it could help, you know, help those communities and create change for those communities. So, um, yeah, that was always part of uh, the plan. You know, that was always yeah part of my vision and very important to me. And, you know, the source was the magazine of hip hop, music, culture and politics. So anyone who read the source back in the days, yeah, you yes. might have picked it up because you wanted to see how many mics we gave albums or you might have wanted to read an interview with Biggie. But you also were reading politics. about social social justice and yes. politics and health and yes. business information and technology and different, you know, fashion, of course, and sports and everything. So, um, so yeah, I mean, getting to, you know, starting the Source Youth Foundation uh, happened in the late 90s as we, you know, grew and have really become a very successful, you know, uh, financially solid company. And we were able to, you know, begin to, to try to do something more concrete. And so, yeah, we had a foundation and we basically identified different programs around the country that were using hip hop to mm. uh, help, help at-risk youth, you know, in the cities in different ways. And then we would fund those uh, programs. Um, and uh, yeah, it, 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 it was very successful. Yeah, you definitely made a mark on some lives out there, man. Thank you. Well, you know, you always created new ways in media and your touch has been golden. Um, I want to talk to you about your newest, Breakbeat Media, a multimedia sure. podcast network. What were your specific reasons for creating this platform and what are its advantages? Well, a few things. I mean, first of all, I just feel like as a whole, as big as hip hop has become today, as omnipresent as it is in our society in so many ways, um, and as much hip hop kind of content that is out there, yes. um, it's still, it's become very kind of spread out and there isn't a trusted platform like the source was that mm. really, really represents the interests and the perspectives um, of the hip hop community in a comprehensive way, again, across all types of subject matters, not just the music and the entertainment part of it. Exactly. Um, we don't have that kind of platform, you know, since I left the source 15 years ago, nobody right. really took that approach. Exactly. Everybody's um, turned into clickbait. Right. So, that's first and foremost is that I really think there's a, a void for a platform that 
you know, treats hip hop respectfully and, 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 and comprehensively and, and keeps it authentic. Mm -hmm. um, also, what I really see and what I really want to do with Breakbeat is try to um, bridge the generation gap uh, because hip hop now spans across three generations. Uh, from Generation X to Millennials to Gen Zs. And what we, what, what we see more is the divide of pitting the old against the young. You know, that's a narrative through the music industry that's been pushed. Oh, yeah. you know, this mumble rap isn't real hip hop or, oh, you guys are just old and out of touch. And, you know, if you're 51 years old and your nephew's 21 years old, like, and you both have grown up on hip hop, you might not like the same music. Anymore. Exactly. It's definitely going to be different perspectives. But the way you think about a lot of things in the world, your way of, you know, thinking, your way of looking at things, you know, whether it's the way you feel when you watch the news or the way you feel when you watch a, a sports event and the way we react, you know, as a hip hop community things. I think we have much more in common beneath the surface of the music because as you know, you know, hip hop is much deeper than just the music. The music is the most visible, the most commercial driving force of it all. Exactly. Um, but there's much more to it. And so to me, that's what is missing is that, you know, people think you have to cater to just the older or the younger side or whatever. I think that you know, when you when you talk about covering a comprehensive range of, of subjects, you can do it in a way that's going to uh, appeal to all sides of the hip hop generations. Um, so that's a real big part of what I see with Breakbeat. Um, now, I chose podcasting and it was really the right time, you know, because of what's going on with podcasting. Yes. Um, podcasting is is a super you know, explosive, dynamic industry that uh, is growing very fast. I think it's going to be around a long time. It's that that world where, you know, new voices are being heard and discovered, where different perspectives are available than what you can get for the mainstream. You know, yeah. you can go and listen to podcasts and find out a lot of information and learn things that you wouldn't find anywhere else. Um, and so it's really ripe for hip hop because, you know, hip hop really hasn't had a huge in influence into podcasting yet. We do have some great hip hop podcasts. So, you know, yeah. the Drink Champs, Million Dollars Worth of Game and the 85 South Show, and, mm -hmm. you know, shows like that come to mind that are incredible and they all do great numbers, but they're kind of spread out and there's not, a lot of them and then you know there's just a lot of subject matter areas that that aren't being touched on and in particular when you go into that more journalistic part of podcasting the storytelling mm -hmm. documentaries and such there's almost nothing in there for hip-hop at all so exactly like the, like the what we're doing with the unsigned hype story um you know there's so many interest interesting and important stories that that need to be told and things that need to be documented right so the the other one that i'm doing now which is is a huge story is the larry hoover life story yeah i um, seen you've been uh, running yeah. around with his uh his son 
Yeah, with, with Larry Jr. He and I yes. have gotten really close. Uh, great guy. And the family has trusted me to tell Larry's story in a 10-part series. The first oh, wow. time that the family has, has participated in telling his story. Um, and, you know, I really think it's a very important story that's very relevant today. Uh, it's never been told in any kind of accurate, in-depth way. People only kind of, generally, most people just know Larry Hoover as, you know, the founder of the Gangster Disciples, you know, this yeah. criminal who's been locked away for years or whatever. Right. But they don't know. That's, you know, that's just one little narrow that's one part nugget. of him. Uh, that the mainstream media and the law enforcement, you know, narratives that have been put out about him. And he's a political prisoner. He's, you know, he reformed Gangster Disciples and changed it to growth and development in the 80s. And he created, you know, political movements. He's the only kind of black gangster in, the, in our culture, in our history, whoever, you know, has been promoting voting and politics, you know, if you went, yeah. a lot of people have heard, heard him on the Ghetto Boys Resurrection album, yes. where, you know, you hear him talking about, you know, how we got to get organized, yeah. how we got to, you know, get together and how we got, yeah. you know, use, use the vote to change our community around. And, um, you know, that that's really why they put him away in the Supermax, because he was going to get out, he was due to get out on parole in the early nineties. And once he got into politics and started registering thousands of voters, mm, they know, saw, they saw him as a threat. They saw him as a threat. And that's really yeah. what I believe. You know, I believe he's a revolutionary who, you know, he was really going to help change the world and change the conditions for, for black and Brown, you know, oppressed people in this country. And he has done that a lot of people's lives, have been turned around because of following the teachings of Larry Hoover. People don't realize, I mean, thousands, if not more, you know, all over the world uh, are, have reformed their lives and done great things because of the teachings of Larry Hoover that they've learned of and, and turned their lives around. So um, I'm really, you know, I'm really honored and, and excited to tell his story as a 10 part series. So we've been working on that for months now, and uh, we're going to drop the trailer on his birthday, November 30th, and, uh, oh, wow. you know, and then start dropping the episodes. You know, well, Dave, man, like, it, it just seems to me like anything you touch, you know, literally turns to gold and is always going to be uh, very thorough and precise. Um, you know, I know you've been running through the gamut, man, back and forth, you know, interview after interview, but... You know, I, I'm thankful for our relationship that you, you know, even took, you know, to, you know, do our season finale, man. And um, yeah. I, I just want to thank you as, you know, my brother. Um, you know, I, I salute you for, you know, everything you have done for this culture and what you continue to do for this culture. And if there's anything, you know, you need on my side, my brother, um, I'm, I'm always here in the cut. Absolutely, man. You know, you know, I've always... You know, I've been checking you out since we met and, you know, you know, you're always, you know, in the mix and you're always on point. And I, I've been watching what you've been doing here with your with your show and everything. So when you reached out, it was, you know, no problem to to come and do this with you, man. So I, you, I really man. enjoy being being here with you tonight. And, um, you know, we'll definitely stay in touch and, and, and keep building. For sure, man. Um, I guess uh, I'm not sure if they still got the little timer thing, but. 
you know, if you got anything you want to tell the people, you know, besides what we already built on, what you got coming, just, you know, tell the people how to reach you and how they can support my man. Yeah, yeah, please. Yeah, I mean, just just go check out the Breakbeat content. I mean, you can go to uh, any podcast app, Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can search our shows. Our first show that's out that's killing it right now is Don't Call Me White Girl. Uh, hmm. She is amazing. She's from Philly. People know her maybe from million dollars worth of games. She was the co-host last year for three months, and she really blew up the spot there. Um, and she's also the person who created Why You Being Weird to Me, which has been okay. going, you know, super viral these last couple of months. That's that's her. And, you know, she's just super funny, but she's also really smart, and she's also going to make you think about important issues while she's entertaining you and that's what i love about her and that's really kind of the dna of breakbeat that i'm trying to get at is that balance there you know keep it entertaining but also you know we got to think we got to talk about some real things going on out here too um so i i love her and her show is already taken off so check out don't call me white girl you can go to breakbeat media youtube uh the channel and you can watch uh the visual show there um, or as I said, listen on the podcast apps. Culturati is out as well. That's the show hosted by Karen Amayo. That's incredible. Um, definitely worth listening to, and you'll learn from that as well. Um, coming up next, uh, Funny Marco. Um, you know, I have a show that I just created with him. Most of us already follow him on IG, and he's been, you know, making us laugh our asses off these last few years. Uh, yes. with all his pranks and skits, but he's just got a special talent that I think he can go to a whole nother level with his, his career. So I'm really happy to have him on board at the launch of, of, of the Breakbeat Network. Um, so yeah, check us out, our website, breakbeatmedia.com. You can follow me, well, you can follow Breakbeat on IG and Twitter, at Breakbeat Media. So if you're on now, go over to at Breakbeat Media, follow us to stay plugged in and then also uh mine is of course at the real dave maze so uh yeah that's where you can kind of check us out and and get involved with the with the with the movement that we're starting well i'm already down to support my brother um again thank you for your time this thank evening thank you for finishing off season three real strong man you know as Definitely. our special guest and like i say man uh all the flowers to you and all you've done for our culture and much more i know you'll continue to do dave appreciate you all right, my brother, one love. All right, peace. Peace. All right, y'all. Episode 10. <laughs> Season three finale. We are done for the year. Yes, that's right. Another one. Thank you to everybody who, uh, you know, been supporting us, man, one through three. You know, we still got much more content to bring. Uh, stay tuned. We're going to uh, take a little bit of hiatus, but, uh, you know, we'll have some uh, some nice highlight reels coming for y'all to check out. You know, make sure y'all tell y'all peoples about Chopping It Up with the Conduit Podcast. We're on Podcasts on Vivo. We're on Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Audio Mac. Rate, share, subscribe. Tell your friends. Yo, shout out to our sponsors for Season 3, Grown Fresh NYC. Y'all know what time it is, street fatigues, so what's the scenario? And House of Customs MD, that's Customs with the K. Um, again, thank y'all everybody for supporting, and um, 
We will see you next go round for season four. Uh, more with chopping it up with the conduit. Um, until then, man, y'all be safe. Y'all be good to each other. And I never dream my first name with fiends Dated five bank tellers the book of my life reads Water fountain, no, now the money fountain close Drink about a window, pre-Mecca Malcolm on Honda silver pot